we shouldn't be doing these things because they're cool tech. I mean, that's fun. We all love that, right? But from a business perspective, these are solutions to communication problems as you bring in more developers, which then means now I need an ops system that can kind of keep up with that type of technology. There's this path and you're like, well, when do I bring it in? Do I bring it in too early? Do I bring it in too late, right? What we're saying is you can bring a partner in there. These are the same problems everybody's having. Your business, you should be a unique snowflake in your market, but not in your ops, not in your tech. From Seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne, and you're in the CTO studio. Today in the CTO studio, two of my close friends, some OGs from the Seven CTOs community, Phil Borlin, Ken Cohn, and they're going to talk about a new startup they created together called Sleep Tight, designed to offload all of your DevOps worries, infrastructure, setup and scale and maintenance and alarms and cleanup and so forth. So hope you enjoy this. Phil Borlin, Ken Cohn, welcome to the CTO studio. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I do have a traditional question, a ritual whenever I see Ken. So I'll just have to say, what's the frequency, Kenneth? And I have to answer all different ways every time. <laughs> I just got uh, Starlink. So the frequency, I think, is KU band today. That is why I love being with my people. Is this connection you're on through Starlink, or is that just a backup? Or It's a backup. Okay. Are you doing sort of a real-time failover to your backup network, or do you have to switch, or how did you set that up? So on this computer, it's manual. On my gaming and streaming computer, it's automatic. I use uh, Speedify. And so it actually, you can do it in a couple modes where it goes parallel to reduce lag for esports gaming, or you can do it in a failover, it'll, but it'll do it automatically. Does it put some oil in your rocking chair as well? I was noticing that. Yes. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I think that's a higher premium level. I think the audience is going to enjoy knowing that Ken's going to have to sit very, very still. And this is not Ken. Okay, I'm ready. I was very into network routing and streaming and NAT and IP submasks and all that in the early 90s, but I forgot all that stuff. So now I'm thinking, how do I get to the Starlink router and the Cox router, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so... That's uh, something I, I love to geek out on, but I have the two of you in the studio because you've founded a company and we're going to talk about all sorts of things around the company today. So you're also in the studio because you're two of my closest friends and compadres since the early days of seven CTOs. Aww. For those that can't see you, you're wearing some OG shirts. <laughs> Ken's wearing a Series 2 shirt, and Phil is wearing a Series 5 from all our past conferences. So both of you are very near and dear to my heart, and so I'm very proud and very excited to talk about Sleep Tight. So let's talk about it. Sleep Tight is, I think you said you wanted to change the way people computer science. Absolutely. Talk to me about that. I think this is common in all of our lives as we get into a groove where we're just kind of going, right? And, and people do this. 
and industries do this, companies do this. And we're going to hopefully talk a lot about this, about this complexity explosion, is that we've kind of gone around and just things are getting more and more complicated. When we kind of start from a, a fundamental goal like computer science, something we don't hardly ever talk about. We call ourselves engineers. We might call ourselves crafters. We might call us other stuff. For a long time, we called ourselves computer scientists, right? And I think that there's like this all-encompassing thing. And it's not to say one is better than the other. Like there's some fundamental things that kind of hold as truths that I don't really think we should be holding as truths, right? And I think there's a lot of power in this statement. And right now, specifically, we're working on the DevOps statement. And uh, uh, heavily influenced by Aaron Contra, and I think he's been on this show before. You know, he had a lot of things that he wanted to change, and he found out that uh, you kind of start and you go into a company, and their DevOps is a mess, and it's hard to make meaningful changes when you can't release software. That's why we're starting here on that mission. Yeah, I love that because you know, being sort of older now, I can fondly remember the days when getting something live was just so easy and it was basically copying files to a Apache folder and boom, you know, the site works or the site's broken. Sometimes just opening VI on the production server and quickly editing a little file because no one's going to notice. Learned the hard way that that fails very quickly. But Let's talk about this complexity issue. So you're focusing specifically on DevOps. So can you unpack that a little bit? I know in and of itself, DevOps, there's a lot of debate around, is it its own thing? Is it supposed to be part of the engineering faculty? Is it or software development faculty? Is the CICD pipeline just supposed to be part of something that all the developers know and do and care about? terraforming, Kubernetes, all these things. You guys are living and eating and breathing this stuff right now. So what comes up for you when these topics come up? So I think the first thing is we're going to use the word DevOps today, but like all other words, right, these are overloaded terms that mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. So maybe just kind of doing a, a definition. When I'm talking about DevOps, I'm talking about the idea that developers need to be in charge of their own destiny. And somebody needs to help the developers get to a point where they can be in charge of their own destiny, right? You know, we have all these other words like DevSecOps, you know, all these types of things. And we're really talking about all of that stuff. As you add one more acronym to the thing, right, you come up with something that's just, you can't even pronounce it, let alone comprehend it. But really, you know, all those things, when I say DevOps, it's a very inclusive term. Toward, towards all these things. And so to me, like this is where this complexity explosion is coming from. And if we go back to, right, in the early days of the web, nothing was figured out. Nobody had solved any problems. So you were competing against another company that hadn't solved any of these problems. And the bar was very low, right? The scammers hadn't figured it out yet, right? They hadn't figured out how to do Nigerian scams. They hadn't figured out spear phishing and you know all the other types of phishing. Like when people haven't figured things out, being at parity uh, with your competitors, it's very easy, right? You can get by with pretty you know, low practices, low level practices. But as people figure things out, we keep moving that. You know, one of the things we kind of talk about are like these three Bs, right? Is technologically, right? You can be behind your peers. And the scary thing is there's a whole lot of people that are behind their peers and they don't even know, right? And uh, I don't want to drop anything, but I know that you're working on that problem very deeply. And, uh, and I look forward 
to any big announcements around that if I'm allowed to tease them. What am I working on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know there's some like major bombs coming from you and I can't wait for them. <laughs> and then there's people who are beside their peers, right? And this is really a parody level, right? And you're like, okay, great. When I go, what does that mean for my business to be at parody? It means absolutely nothing, right? Because if I'm not beyond my peers, I have no advantage. So as you move from behind your peers to beside your peers, all you've done is gotten rid of a disadvantage. It's not impressive. And so there's this place beyond your peers where all of a sudden, you know, your DevOps, your tech stack, all that type of stuff can now all of a sudden be a leverage hmm. for your business. Behind, beside, beyond. Yeah. You know, as an example, when I was a young engineer, I was designing circuit cards, writing software for embedded systems, and we didn't have the tools we needed. And I set up a Novell server. I did some networking. Our R&D department built the first IT infrastructure for our several hundred person company and didn't have it. And eventually it became overbearing. We said, you need to hire an IT person to take care of this infrastructure. And what we were doing, we were producing value that was competing with other companies in the satellite space, but we were getting diluted by having to run a Novell network, build servers and, and run these boxes. And our peers didn't have that problem. They had their MIS systems and, and IT. And so that's kind of where I think people are finding themselves today, where you ask, there's this debate of where does it belong? And I don't think it belongs on the engineers, right? It doesn't belong on the developers, the developers who are writing the software to change the world, whether it's a, a SaaS product or an embedded product or whatever. Like, why are they having to learn Kubernetes or containers or Docker? And there's a lot of people who have figured this out, so they're behind. So what we're trying to do is, like Phil says, we're trying to change the way people computer science. You know, we don't flip the ones and zeros on the Altair machines anymore. The transistors do that for us. And it's long past time that DevOps is that way for people who are creating value, the designers, the developers. It needs to be as transparent as a lot of the computing is for us now. It does seem interesting for me. And if I just look to myself, and I might not be the token modern developer, but it does feel to me like there's a distinct. I want to write the code. I want to have an amazing time solving problems with my code. And then there's like, ugh, now I've got to go get it live or I've got to go stage it. Or I, I have to have a CI pipeline that not even an automated one. I just have to be in a cycle of staging my changes. And then there's the getting it out to people. I just find that to be so tedious. And I'm just curious as to why are those two different things? Because if you look at things like Terraform and Puppet and all these tools designed to codify these things, I mean, isn't it just more code that I'm writing just to get something? Why should it be two different things and not just the same thing? It has to do with feedback cycles. If I'm doing well-tested code and maybe even test-driven code, but not necessarily test-driven code, that there's this feedback cycle where I can put out a little piece of code and I can run a test and we're in seconds. I move over to Terraform, and I go run a Terraform script, and it's minutes to kind of go see if that thing kind of uh, appeared on the cloud, right? And we have 
plans, right? You can run the plan first, and that'll knock out, you know, a certain number of, right? But that still involves going out over a network to a state file, except if you're like on a toy project, you can't just have your state file sitting locally on your machine. And so you kind of go through all these types of things and it just adds seconds and it adds minutes. Whereas, you know, on development, you're living in a millisecond, maybe a single digit second type situation. And even the companies that are like really, really bad, we're talking about like, you know, small amounts of minutes. And in DevOps, we're talking about like small trivial systems are at minutes. And if you're at, you know, a non-trivial system, you could be 10 minutes, you know, it could be 20 minutes, could be an hour. I've worked on some seriously complicated Terraform systems. I love it. Like I can geek out about it, but the feedback cycle is horrible. Feedback cycle. So one of the ways this hits people, like when we first started working on this, one of the ways we would talk to potential customers is talk about, we're going to provide you with a modern infrastructure. And it kind of sounded like, oh, this is a nice to have. Oh, you want a new shiny infrastructure, right? And really what we realized is that's not the conversation at all. The real conversation is this is a need. It's not some new shiny Rolls-Royce, Cadillac, Maserati, insert whatever here. This is the truck. This is the trucking industry. This is the infrastructure that you have to have to stay current. Like, well, if you're competing with Amazon, yeah, I, uh, but if you're competing with someone who's releasing software every few seconds, every few minutes, or even several times a day, you can't afford to have to wait for it to be deployed, for things to spin up, to come down, or manually spin stuff up. It sucks the life out of you. I mean, it's you're waiting. You're... By the way, if you are competing with Amazon, you may be part of the first colony on Mars, and you're about to create AWS.Mars. <laughs> yeah, it would Can be a challenge. You, you imagine the legal complexities for a new planetary entity? Like, do copyrights exist there, trademarks? Oh, yeah. That's a whole new world, quite literally. So what I want to do with my developers or with anything I build, I, I want to not have to worry about the deployment. I don't want to have to worry about the availability. I want to have all the Dora metrics feel super awesome. And this is where I think you guys are saying, hey, there's this very defined component to this whole cycle that can be outsourced and should be outsourced and um, in many cases can provide sort of that frictionless partnership to the dev team. I, and I think it's even a little one more step of complexity past that is you go like, okay, I'm a startup. I have a couple developers. I, I need certain things, right? Then I move on and I start hiring and I need different things. And we get killed on the funding cycle. And that exactly happens, right? Is we can't pull in enough revenue, you know, to build our, our product fast enough. And so we've invented this kind of like VC treadmill. And, you know, I would say like your DevOps is on that similar kind of cycle is that you're never going to have enough developers. You're never going to have enough help in there to kind of keep up with that next step that you're going towards, right? And so we really feel like that something's got to give. And that's exactly why we're doing what we're doing is that there's certain things that you do 
you know, with 30 developers, right? You have a certain number of, of microservices at that point. You have these hiring challenges. You start going, okay, well, what if I'm going into hypergrowth, right? Which hypergrowth, I'm talking about the 40% CAGR. I mean, some people are like uh, super hypergrowth, but just even if you're your business starts succeeding and you start talking about doubling your dev team from 30 to 60 or quadrupling your dev team, right? We have a lot of friends in that situation, right? And you go, well, how do I scale this, right? It becomes an onboarding issue because now these new people have to go into teams. These teams have to have services, right? We have to separate out because really the reason for microservices is so that you can have communication. We shouldn't be doing these things because they're cool tech. I mean, that's fun. We all love that. Right. But from a business perspective, these are solutions to communication problems as you bring in more developers, which then means now I need an ops system that can kind of keep up with that type of technology. There's this path and you're like, well, when do I bring it in? Do I bring it in too early? Do I bring it in too late? Right. What we're saying is you can bring a partner in there. These are the same problems everybody's having. Your business, you should be a unique snowflake in your market but not in your ops, not in your tech. Yeah, it's like uh, one of our friends talks of this about this a lot, which is dedicate your time and your resources to the edge of innovation, like the 20% of magic and innovation you're doing and have the others just don't waste time in that space. And I feel like infrastructure, setup, maintenance, hardening, deploying, growth, I mean, all that stuff, I just don't want to think about that stuff. I just wanted to have it go bye-bye. Make it available. Right, right. And so all the stuff you're talking about, I'm like getting excited. I'm like, yeah, this is cool. I'm like, okay, we'd love to do that. We're doing that for you. And we've been doing that for customers for a while now. And it's all a matter of context, right? Like even when an engineer gets promoted into management, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. You've been an engineer for 10 years. Let's say they were a hardware engineer. You've been designing CPUs that talk to memory and you've written software and the logic that talks to the different chips. All you're doing now is you're putting together this biological computer and writing the social software to interconnect the things and making sure that there's not a large propagation delay from one thing communicating to the next. And so similarly, like you said, aren't we just all writing code? Well, Phil and I are having a blast writing code to do the stuff that you just said. But I think the context is that, I mean, if you're developing a movie like your Pixar or something, or if you're writing the next best software as a service or whatever the things are that you're doing, you don't want to get hung up on, oh, I've got a plumbing leak. I got to fix the toilet. It's like saying before you can code, you have to understand assembly. It's like, no, dude. No. You don't have to. Or before you can code, you have to understand compiling and memory allocation. No, you, there's a VM for that. We're good to go. Interpreters. I think this makes sense for me. Uh, it's landing. So thank you. That only took 20 minutes and 47 seconds. Let's dig in a little bit into some DevOps best practices, maybe some of Sleep Tight's playbooks. Obviously, we have a lot of CTOs listening to this podcast to might feel that yearning in their hearts like, oh man, I just want someone to take care of my DevOps. I'm tossing and turning at night and I can't sleep. And all I want to do is sleep. sleep. <laughs> that was beautiful. I love it. I was promising myself, I was actually rehearsing that before the show to say that with a straight face, but let's dig in a little bit. 
let's nerd out a little bit. So talk to the CTO who maybe doesn't have a DevOps team. Let's not talk to the person who believes all engineers or developers should code their own infrastructure. There is a group like that and who cares? It's great. Nothing right or wrong about that. But let's talk to the companies out there who are constantly running up against the challenges of DevOps, who just wants to be able to say, okay, someone else is taking care of this for me while I focus on the innovation and the good stuff. First of all, I want to give a shout out to that person who wants their devs to do everything because there's something about understanding your system. I think Aaron Contora is one of those, right? Isn't Aaron like there shouldn't be, like it should all be one thing? Aaron, well, if you're listening, can you call us and just tell us what you said? <laughs> I'm not going to speak for Aaron here, but Aaron is a god in our community, by the way. Aaron Contoro. We so. love Aaron. Yeah, we love Aaron. To go into the question, number one is we want to get the complexity under control, right? And for our smaller clients, we're like, okay, if you're on AWS, let's go into ECS before you move into Kubernetes, right? You know, if you're on Azure, let's sit there on the paths for a while, right? You can throw containers at their paths for a little while before we move into Kubernetes. For people who don't understand what ECS is versus Kubernetes. So what happens is Kubernetes, so we have these Docker containers, right? You might've done them on, on your local machine, kind of like the next evolution past the virtual machine. So instead of running a full virtual machine, you can think of a container as like an application. So you're running these containers on your local machine, and you go into saying like, okay, now how do I get those into production? So kind of a good place on Amazon is the Elastic Container Service. It's a pretty powerful orchestration layer. It's not going to work for a company at thousands of developers. I mean, we've seen it go pretty far with some kind of companies, and it's just a much simpler model than moving over to Kubernetes. Kubernetes is like the gold standard. It'll run Google-sized companies, and it's really fantastic. And there's a lot of really cool things to do. It's, it's worth geeking out over. But when we're talking about running your business, we usually like to say, hey, like, if we can stay in the simpler area for a longer period of time, as long as you have a path, right? Because what you don't want to do is get yourself and go too simple. And now it becomes a rewrite to kind of get to the more complicated thing. But what we want to say is like, especially Helix, containerize your application. Let's get into a simpler orchestration layer while you don't have that many deploy, you know, employees. And when you start bumping into the problems that you need Kubernetes for, and those are things like I start needing to bring in like Linkerd or something like that because I'm rewriting the wheel on too many things and I want to bring in the service mesh to kind of uh, normalize type of stuff. Like when you're having those type of conversations, you need to be in Kubernetes for that. I think the world has had long enough time now to understand what Docker is and what containers are. Is it your recommendation that any startup is Dockerizing their apps? Is that like a best practice that is goes without saying it's doing anything other than that is actually considered exceptional? Yeah. I want everybody to do that day one, right? And the okay. reason day why- Day one, okay. And maybe not day one, but you know what I'm saying? Like when I go to production, day one of production, Docker. Yes. So when I'm building my app, and this goes for companies that are starting and ones maybe that are already in the swing of things, make sure that you have dockerized your app, which allows for the containerization of everything needed to run the app and the 
placing of that in various environments that can still ensure that the app can run as expected, correct? Like staging environment, production environment, local dev environment. Right. That's a lot of environments for somebody starting <laughs> out. But that's almost a whole nother conversation. So if you back up to, let's say there is a startup, go to some startup who hasn't heard about this, right? They've never really worked with AWS and they want to get into the cloud. What are they going to do? Let's talk about Amazon. They're going to go say, well, I need to be in the cloud. I'm going to rent a light sale box. And then they spin up some managed version of Linux and they say, okay, which web server am I going to, oh, I need to set up my firewall. I need to create user. I got to do all this stuff. Oh, what? We just deployed, but I did this six months ago. I got to patch my servers. Okay, everyone hold up. We got to do this. So that's what earlier I say in archaic. No, write your code, dockerize it, put it in your modern infrastructure that's like a necessity, tie your version control system through your CICD pipeline to your ECR registry, get it pushed out there, check in your code, which automatically pushes it up there. And then it's in all of these services that why are you having to reinvent the wheel to set up? And I think, by the way, your beard, best version of your beard I've ever seen. <laughs> but don't want to lose my train of thought. <laughs> Listening to you makes me realize that we've just uncovered a pretty serious threat, which is if you are encouraging all your engineers or devs to try and set these things up, VPCs, subnets, routing, authorization, IAM profiles. Honestly, it's a shit show in many ways. I mean, I try to get lambdas working and I'm digging around in routing tables in Amazon and I'm just like, why am I doing this? So that one part of the Amazon data center can access the other part of the, like, I shouldn't be doing this stuff. I just want to deploy my little serverless piece of code. I want it to work. So the threat that I'm hearing from you, Kenneth, the frequency that you're on is that there could be so many touch points that if everyone in the team is asked to know everything about all the things, you're bound to have people misconfigure. And then worst case scenario, out of frustration to start sort of opening up privileges and just to see if it will work. Is this what we're facing or am I too naive? Here's the really shocking thing. Like when we spin up a very simple but secure, you know, we're talking about like uh, three availability zones, private subnets, all that type of stuff. We're sitting between 50 and 80 AWS resources in our Terraform file. So from a, can I hand a dev a Terraform file of that complexity and have them understand it? Absolutely right. We do that all the time. A lot of our clients are like, we want to know exactly what's going on. We can explain that in an hour or two. But can we teach you to like do that correctly and to not make the mistakes that we all made years ago that we've hardened, you have got past? I can't teach that in a couple hours, right? I think that's where it goes down to where, yes, I'm a big believer that developers should understand their tools, but that doesn't mean they have to write their tools. Right. And they need to understand what their infrastructure is so they can specify what it should be. But having to understand the nuances of configuring all the different, the thousands of services that exist on AWS alone, what should I use? So-called primitives, right? The primitives, like 
you know, we, we really shouldn't be in primitive land anymore. Like, yes, they're there to create all these thousands of building blocks, but services like Sleep Tight and other managed services start to form their own frameworks, so to speak, on top of these so that you can deploy with according to a certain modality. Is that correct? So I love the way you use the word primitive because we use this all the time. There's nothing wrong with primitives. We just need to change the primitives. Going back to this assembly code thing that we talked about before, right? In a Turing complete language, we have an if statement. In assembly, right, that's a jump command and you're jumping all over the place and right, jump and branch, right? And it's like, yeah, I can't jump and branch because I'll get nothing done all day like that, right? But I can do an if statement. And it, to me, it's about pushing the primitives up so that you know we can talk about things, right? What do we want to talk about? We want to talk about a service as a primitive, right? We want to talk about a network as a primitive, right? And the network primitive includes the VPC, the six availability zones, three in the public, in the private subnet, and or the three private subnets, the three public subnets. It includes the routing table that you just talked about. Maybe there's a VPN in there, right? Maybe there's a bastion server in that, right? Like all of that is like the new network primitive. Can you just clarify for me and for the listeners, mostly for me, LightSail is what? It's Amazon's, you know, it's like a digital ocean or something like that, where you just, you have a very simple server as opposed to like EC2. Oh, got it. So it's like a layer on top of EC2? Yeah. Okay. And it's configured. It's already got Linux on there. You just specify what is the box you want. It's like ordering a server from Dell, so to speak. Can you guys remember the days when we would order our managed server and they would put it in the rack and then they would give you the IP and you'd SSH into it for the first time? You can talk about the good old days, right? But I also remember that exact same day where you'd call up your ops people and you'd be like, hey, this is going to scale and we need three more servers. And then you'd wait three months for those servers. Let's keep going. So Sleep Tight comes in. Basically, obviously, you find out what the app's running on. You understand the overall architecture. Then the containerized Docker apps, let's assume we have that. So now we're at ECS, which is the Elastic Container Service, not to be confused with EKS, which is the Elastic Kubernetes Service. Right. So right. let's talk about from Docker, we go to what? We deploy it to an ECS? If you want what's going on behind in the back end, like what we're actually doing. So we have ECR, which is the Elastic Container Repository. And this is what I'm talking about. Like this is the madness that's going on, right? I think I know the ECR, you publish your Docker image or your Docker, what's the instance and what is? Yeah, you put the Docker image into your container. So you have a container registry, which is a bunch of repositories, and there's one repository per container, and then each version gets a tag. Well, I guess you don't have to tag it; you can use latest version. But basically, you know, you put in, you know, a version of that image. And so what we're doing out of the box is we set up. A, we're listening. Oh my goodness! Now you're gonna like make me go through the whole thing. But Amazon is sending out these events, and we're listening to these events on EventBridge. And through EventBridge, what we're doing is when that happens, when we find out there's a new container coming in there, we're kicking off a Lambda. Okay. Lambda 
is then going to ECS and to this, what they call a task, mm -hmm. which is running in a service and the service keeps the task running. And we bump it and we say like, hey, there's a new version over here. And so it'll go out there, pull out of ECR, and then it'll deploy that in there in a situation where it'll kind of run both the old image and the new image. Like a blue-green deploy? Yeah. It's not exactly blue-green because blue-green is a switch. What we, what we usually set up is the rolling, and there's pros and cons to blue-green. But yeah, like simply, yes. So we're rolling out the old version and into the new version, and now all of a sudden that's coming in there. And all the time, right, there's all the logs that are going on, right, because we actually have a log based on what the state of the task is, several logs are going on there because if something goes wrong, you need to troubleshoot it. And if you mess up those logs, you're blind. But from the user's perspective, all they have to do is, we actually have a very kind of naive CI pipeline that we can set somebody up on day one, and then they can bring in their own later on, and then they just have to push to ECR. And so like that's what it looks like to them. Under the naive thing, right, they're pushing to get, and it's all the magic happens. If they want to bring in a more robust CI system, all they have to do is push it out to ECR, and then the rest. Of because the, then it triggers the event bridge, then triggers the lambda, and then moving of the images and blah 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 blah. All that all that happens. And everything you just said. Imagine you're setting up a new company or the next big new thing, and you've got your two developers working on this, or if you're twenty developers, however many, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I've got to have all this stuff happen. I need to hire a DevOps engineer, or can you guys learn the DevOps stuff? And then they got to learn how to deploy ECS, ECR, et cetera, et cetera. And then all the stuff around it that maybe would be best practices to do, but they either don't have time to do it, the opportunity to learn it, the awareness that it's even there. And so when Phil's talking about primitives, instead of ordering a managed server put in a rack or a light sale box or something else, now you order a primitive called a cloud service. Oh, yeah. And what's the cloud service? Oh, there's a VPC and it's a virtual private cloud. And it's got your registry, your ECR. It's running ECS Fargate. And how do people get into it? Maybe they need a database. Is it RDS? Is it MySQL? Is it Aurora? Doesn't matter. You just click, okay, this is how I want it configured. And then that goes through our IP, our Terraform scripts, we press a button after we've configured it for you and it rolls it all up and deploys, I don't remember what the last count was, 26, 27 different services at the bare minimum. Hmm. You got your VPC or you might have a green and a blue subnet. You've got IAM, account management, access management, identity management. You dockerize your container so they can consume environment variables. So you've got parameter stores and it writes to syslog so that CloudWatch can pick it up and all your logs come in one place. Doesn't matter what the, and I've only said half the things, not mm -hmm. even, and it's all wired together for you and your engineers, your developers don't have to reinvent the wheel because the primitive that they're setting up is their infrastructure, their dev environment. And they just have another instance for a staging environment, maybe in another instance for prod environment. I'm assuming that sometimes when you come into companies in part of the audit process or the onboarding process, you identify some upgrades that need to be made to the dev process. Or for instance, someone isn't dockerized. Do you sort of 
push upstream a bit and be like, hey, you know, we need to sort of streamline X, Y, and Z? Yeah, definitely. Before we move on to that topic, I want to make sure that like we're clear that that's the ECS route, yes, which is a simple route. When we're on the Kubernetes side, we're bringing in things like Argo, right? We have to have like the deployment is all different. You know, we're, we're managing all this other type of stuff. The complexity just explodes even more, which is why I'm saying that like, this is why we try to steer the smaller companies to like do an ECS as a simpler service because we can get the primitives that they need in a simpler system. But we do work with Kubernetes people also because there's a point where where you do need that. We love Kubernetes. I love Kubernetes, right? It's just that like, let's not jump in there. Okay, got but it. Your question. So the number one thing is, right, if you, I don't care if you don't have a CI system. Like I said, we have a naive CI system we can spin you up on. But we need a Docker file. And so definitely we do work with people to kind of get those initial Docker files. A lot of times what we'll see are people have a Docker file, but it's a dev quality Docker file, right? We're running the root user. We're maybe running, trying to run multiple services in the same Docker file, right? Instead of running one service per Docker file, right? A lot of times their database is tied in because they're Docker files for a dev environment. And so uh, kind of splitting that and saying like, okay, like here's what a production quality you know, we can use a smaller base image. We can use a multi-image step system so that we can build up here with all our build tools and we can throw them out. And then our production, we're just sitting here at our application. But yeah, absolutely. But other than that, the other thing then becomes is, hey, do you have a bunch of branches sitting there around there? Or do you have a pile of code that's not going into production because it's going into branches? Hmm. And which brings us to this delicious trunk-based development conversation. Just to put a bow on the ECS, EKS thing. So Kubernetes is what? It's the orchestration of containers? Yes. Okay. So what happens is when you have like a monolith, right? There's no orchestration. You just throw this thing out there. You toss it behind some DNS. Now all of a sudden I've broken it up. I have two services and now they need to talk to each other or they need to split something between a load balancer. And then we start moving into now we have 30 services and we have some services that we want to expose to the internet, some services that we don't want to expose to the internet. And we kind of go through this kind of cycle. And so in the beginning, the orchestration is pretty simple. And ECS does that fantastic, simple orchestration when everything's kind of coming in through the internet, right? It's all customer facing. Obviously there's security, but, and then you get to this point where you're like, okay, this service can only be called by this service. And you start getting a much bigger policy thing. So it's more complex, like like SOA sort of just put the whole thing into sort of Kubernetes clusters and then off they go. And then all these microservices images that are, like you said, some are exposed, some are only internal, all that stuff gets deployed. Got it. So we talk to a lot of CTOs and I'm on the bandwagon, you know, mostly inspired by Accelerate and the DevOps report by, you know, Google and all that to do trunk-based development with feature flags. And Phil, I know you're an aficionado with this stuff. Can you explain trunk-based development and the combination with feature flagging? I know you've had an illustrious career, what you've seen and, and what you maybe don't see, and then I guess relating to sleep tight, I don't know if that's beyond the purview of sleep tight because, you know, we're in DevOps land or... Yeah, no, let's talk about this because 
we all talk about these CI servers, right? And CI means continuous integration. And this whole concept came out from a problem we were having, right, in the 2000s, where we were doing releases hardly ever. Maybe you had to release a quarter or something like that, and you were an agile company. And then we started saying, hey, let's do six-week sprints, which is ridiculous. Nobody would talk about a six-week sprint today, except in very specialized areas. And so you had, uh, I don't know, I always heard them called build monkeys, right? But there was just that unlucky person in your team that needed to grab all this code that was being written, put it together, and get into a release cycle. And so then we came up with this term called continuous integration, right? And we built a server for it. And that meant that all the code was continuously integrated together. And then at some point, we were like, hey, let's do Gitflow, which is let's have all these branches all over the place. Well, the only integrated code is the code on your main branch, right? Everything else is not integrated by definition, right? They're sitting on branches. And so to me, trunk-based development is going back to that ideal that we had such a big need for back then is to say like, okay, the code is completely integrated at all times which presents a problem, right? There's a reason we did GitFlow. And it's because maybe some of this code isn't ready for the customer. And so like, that's where a feature flag comes in where you go, okay, great. But before I start doing code, instead of let's create a branch, let's go the other way, let's create a feature flag. And let's wrap that around there. Now I can keep this code integrated with everything out on the main branch. I can push it all the way into production. It can't affect people poorly. I mean, you can screw up your feature flag. You can screw up anything, right? These aren't idiot-proof technologies. But meaning like, right, with this discipline, now all of a sudden you have this feature flag around it. And then all of a sudden we start looking around and go like, well, what else can I do with this feature flag? And to me, the most exciting thing is I can push this out to production. And if I know my business well, I know which customers are more tolerant of risk, right? Because we all have those customers in our business that are like, I wish I could just have the feature even if it wasn't fully baked. Right. And then you have your pilot customers, which most of your customers will hey, don't give it to me until it's ready. Now we can start segregating our customers and we can start opening up that feature flag to a small population. And now all of a sudden they can get it very early. So we've solved the integration problem that we had with GitFlow. I loved how you sort of painted the picture of why GitFlow increased in popularity and then how the world has changed to where trunk based. Because from what I can remember, when it was Subversion and even before that, when it was CVS and all that, everyone was sort of already working on the trunk branch. Like, wasn't trunk-based development back then sort of the standard? And then this whole branching thing happened. It was a special case because as soon as there were branches, you could branch off. And then there was the nightmare of merging everything back in, which I remember. was so much friction. And then things would get out of sync and it would yes. be way too much to put it together. So like entropy, naturally, it would fall away from the trunk. Yeah, I laughed at, I think it was Subversion. CVS branching was hard. And then Subversion comes along, makes it super easy, but then <laughs> makes merging almost impossible. <laughs> but with Git and sort of a distributed repository, I wonder, wasn't, the promise of GitFlow supposed to be more, and now we're all of a sudden saying, no, let's use Git to do more centralized development. Didn't we go backwards a little bit by saying trunk-based? Well, so I remember using Mercurial, right? And Mercurial like, had a serve command in there, right? And so 
literally what you would do is you'd spin up a server on your local dev machine, you'd push something up to it, and your friend at the next desk over would go pull that in there, and you'd be working on this branch that never made it up to the central group. There was something there, and it didn't win, right? Git won, and GitHub won, right? And you know now we have competitors, but I mean, like GitHub kind of brought this idea that we can have a trusted centralized server. There certainly were with um, Subversion and in other places, but GitHub gave us a compelling version of the future, and we all bought into it, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, it serves the open source community really well. You can have a lot of junior developers, a lot of hobbyist developers work in the same code base together, and that's very successful, right? But if you want to put it into a product company where you have to develop quickly, where you need to iterate fast, where you need to get MVPs out and fail fast and then do it again, trunk-based, I think, keeps things more synchronized. It just seems like the premise is the effort required to bring everything back into a merged state at the end of a branch's lifetime is far outweighs the effort required to just keep everything synced or merged with Trunk on a constant, regular basis. And it requires discipline, though, which is why companies will do it, but the open source community will. Got it. Got it. Part of my point is I think both are appropriate methods for today. Just what's the context for them? I get it. I get it. I also see a team size thing. When I have four developers on a team, trunk-based development is pretty easy. If I have sit there and have like eight to 12 people on a development team, right, these types of things, meaning like solo coders, right? Obviously, if we're doing mobbing or pair programming, trunk-based becomes easier. And I think we're seeing that more and more often, right? I mean, you know, I remember during the 2000s, you had 15 people teams and like nobody thought anything of it. And it came down to, we couldn't do microservices. We didn't have the technology for microservices. And so you would split projects and all the devs would be on the same project. You wouldn't split up. And I shouldn't say that you wouldn't split up. I mean, you still split up. But the technology got to a point where small teams, we could do small teams. And I think that's where we're at right now. And, and that might be part of the switch. Part of the evolution. So if we have trunk-based development, which is hours-long branching, frequent merging, everything is sort of merged into a state, whether it's trunk or main or whatever. Then you have feature flagging, which in a way releases code darkly, I suppose. And I know we had split IO CTO on here a few weeks ago. The next thing that, that is important is the Terraform and the infrastructure as code approach. Can you guys speak to that? Yes. A lot of people, when they start out, like we affectionately call it click ops, where you're just clicking around on a console. And even if you're doing command line, like you've just lost your records, right? You have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what happened. You don't really know what's going on. And so to me, like we kind of come out of this as there's a complexity explosion. Nobody would ever take code and not put it into, right, into a repository, right, a version control. And I think we're to the point where nobody should be doing their operations without putting it in a version control. So that's part of this infrastructure as code movement. And yeah, we love Terraform. Is Terraform the only player out there that sort of widely adopted or? 
there's a new movement, right? So Terraform is a declarative language. There's a movement around imperative infrastructure as code, and meaning like you're in kind of a regular language, you know, might use Python or something like that. And then you kind of code up your infrastructure in a more familiar language. And I think we're in the early days of that. We're still having problems because when you do declarative, there's a whole class of problems that can't happen because you don't have like if loops. The language controls, you know, a lot of things. It's not Turing complete. When you move into a Turing complete language, it becomes harder to kind of put the boundaries around what you're doing. And a lot of people are being successful on it. And a lot of people are saying, hey, I'm running into these weird errors that happen in these imperative things. So I think it's kind of early. I'm still in the declarative camp. And to me, I don't even know who number two is in the declarative camp, right? Right, there's specific languages, right? There's CloudWatch, right, is obviously in there. But when we're talking about like multi-platform, multi-technology tools, I don't know who number two is. And is the development cycle of a Terraform scripts or projects, is it the same as normal code? By declarative, what we mean is you say, hey, this is what I want to happen, right? As opposed to imperative code where you're saying, hey, do this and then do this and then do this, right? So in that case, if you're comparing it to your normal product, right, you're using an imperative language, you're telling it do these in this order, and you flip over to declarative, it's not going to feel the same. But if you're comparing it to other declarative languages, like SQL is probably the most famous declarative language, it feels very natural. So historically for me, back up 25 years, and we're working on a product that is, say, Linux-based. And my dev, who's responsible for the infrastructure of that server that our product rests on, it's a physical product we would ship, starts typing stuff out. But he's very disciplined. And so he makes a playbook. This is how I set up this equipment. And we'll take an image of it and reproduce it in manufacturing. And he makes this text-based thing. A few months later, he's like, this is stupid. He turns it into a script. And he uses like a bash, you know, like a shell script or something, and then sets up his thing that way. And so this is the declarative versus imperative thing, right? So he goes through and he says, do this, do this, do this, do this. And as soon as we accept a new distribution, everything breaks. Or one of the dependencies changes versions and now his script doesn't work anymore. And so that's where I would lean more towards the this is what I want, because that's all handled behind the scenes. Again, it's just another case of elevating the primitives to the things we don't need to think about, the decisions we don't need to make to the level where we can be more productive. And then all the things that go along with that, right? Now, all of a sudden, we put inversion control. Now we have CI for your infrastructure. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is, what does yes. that even mean? So what it means is that we, we do this like we develop everything else, right? And these are the parts that are the same. We say like, hey, let's go into our dev environment. If we're talking about a dev staging prod, let's go into our dev environment and let's start writing this script and let's start running that in that dev environment. And then we can kind of promote it up to the staging environment and we can promote it up to the prod environment. So by the time we're running these scripts in prod, they're rock solid, right? We've proven them in a couple other things. And so this is actually how we write our Terraform scripts, is we, we use a bunch of modules that are common between everything. We version them, and then we have kind of like a root module 
for each environment. And then you'll run that root module, which will then choose a certain version of each module. So as we fix, you know, maybe our network module, we upgrade the version, we can then go into our dev root module, upgrade the version, and now all of a sudden we have all that new stuff that we just kind of coded into dev. Going into staging is just about going to the staging root module and increasing those versions. And uh, I mean, the chances of errors are very, very low in a situation like that, but at the same time, gives you plenty of time to experiment. And at the end of the day, this is what we've all been promised for decades, is that staging should look like production, right? Dev should look like staging. If they look differently, they're not useful because then we're in a works on my machine situation. Yeah, yeah. The nightmare scenario is if you're in a situation where you push some code to dev, all works perfectly, we promote it up to staging, all works perfectly, we get into prod and everything blows up because the environments aren't the same. So I'm a little stuck on the declarative thing. So in my example, if I want to spin up an EC2 instance using Terraform, can you describe in words kind of what the statement would look like? Yeah. So what you would say is, hey, I want a new... Hey, computer. Hey, computer. Hey, computer. Yeah. (laughs) You have to talk to it. You can't talk. Let's all do it. Okay, computer. I want an EC2 instance. I want it to have this much memory. I want it to have this much CPU. I want it to run this script as soon as it starts up. But that all feels brutally simple. Yeah. Isn't that coding? And if it were imperative, what would that look like? You would say, okay, let's create a computer. Now let's add some RAM to it. Now let's add some, that's what it looks like in imperative, right? But really the question then becomes not what happens when I want an EC2 server. It's where I want an EC2 server and a database. And you go, okay, in declarative, you say, hey, I want my EC2 instance. I want my database. And I have no opinions about which order you do it in. I don't even care. They're two blocks of statements. And like I said, like we talked earlier, that a lot of times simple setups are 50 to 80 resources. Now, all of a sudden, if I have to sit there and code and say like, hey, spin up this one, then this one, then this one, then this one, and what happens if this fails? And like, that's imperative, right? Okay. You just say, hey, here's the 80 things I need. There's some loops in there. Is there some conditionals? Like, can you say, hey, if the EC2 creation fails, do something? Well, the nice thing about Terraform is, what you have are providers, and you can write your own provider, but usually you're using other people's providers, and they've already codified that. Oh, okay, got it. And that's one of the beauties of Terraform is this rich yes. ecosystem. Of, yes. Got it. It's what we do too, right? So by the time that our customers need a primitive, we've already debugged that part of it. Got it, got it. So they don't have to worry about that. Maybe let's wrap up with this concept then of maintenance or observability or alarms what does sleep tight or what do companies like yours do then do you sit by the telephone and wait for it to ring (laughs) yes there are some customers that have wanted those types of services but generally like the better model to me is that like developers should be like managing their own thing and that kind of gets back to our early conversation developers should be able to understand their system. They don't necessarily have to write their system. But when it comes down to, we are experts on our clients' infrastructure. We are not experts on their applications. 
And so when it comes down to, okay, now all of a sudden there's a bug in production, we're not the experts there, right? We don't know the ins and outs of that application, right? If you say like, okay, our database just disappeared and we don't know what happened, absolutely, right? We're there to kind of say like, okay, like what just happened there? Okay, but that hasn't happened to our customers. I want to clean up. That has never happened. Hypothetical, not a real thing. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about database running out of memory. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Or I/O or sockets, you know, running out of sockets. Running out of IPs. The... Running out of IP. That'll that's happen. a real one. Yeah, that really happened. Right. I mean, absolutely. Like. Those are the types of things that we're there to help out with, right? Because I think a lot of times what will happen is a customer will come in and there's a project to do. And then after that project's done, right, there's still work to do, right? There's still like little maintenance tasks, right? Yes, let's spin up a new service, right? Hey, there's this maintenance task. And to kind of go back to your thing about alarms, right? These are just resources, right, that can be put into, into Terraform, right? Typically, is the SLA with a company like yours then keep my systems up and running? And if our systems go down, then you're in breach of the agreement? Or do you stay away from the app being up and running? Yeah, we kind of stay away from the app being up and running. We don't have control of the app's performance itself. If it crashes. Which is why I'm asking. Like, yeah. Is there a misconception that, well, you guys are the DevOps people, you make our apps run beautifully and fast and amazing? And that's something that we're pretty upfront about, right? We always talk about the things that we don't do. We're not there to provide application architecture. I mean, even though Ken and I personally have a lot of experience with that, like as a company, that's not our business to like, to kind of come up with this like grand architecture, which is why we always talk about the infrastructure, not the architecture. To go back to your example, like my database is spinning out of RAM. Great. We will help you bump up the RAM. We're not really the database people that kind of come in and fix your queries. The vertical scaling, you don't go in and sort of debug. Like you don't do New Relic or any sort of telemetry tools. Well, if you need it installed, but not yes, necessarily. The got monitor. it, but not the monitoring. Okay, good. And then help me understand two things. One, AWS or cloud costing, and then also typically how do you structure your fees in as much detail as you want to go into. But for the CTO listening to this saying, hey, yeah, I should really leave my engineer's pain around this stuff. I want to bring someone like you guys in. How do you manage the AWS cost and or your fees? And before he hits on costing, which you can speak to well, one of the wonderful things about this is it is the client's infrastructure. It's not ours. It's not in our AWS account. So when SleepType helps you get to a modern infrastructure, when we help you get to a, even a more secure thing, even though we're not necessarily selling security experts, you can talk to Ted Harrington for that. But Ted Harrington is a good friend. My mind went all different ways with Ted security and all that. But the customer owns their infrastructure. And so even when we run our Terraform scripts or our modules or provide our products and services, then they still own it. And so they have their own Amazon bill. They have their own infrastructure costs. And we can help them be most efficient in that. But I just wanted to point out that's their infrastructure, not our infrastructure. So 
So then I turn it back to Phil to say, okay, and how do we cost with that? Usually there's uh, some kind of a starting project, right? Because usually people usually don't come to us because everything's hunky-dory and they just need to continue on. They usually come because there's some big concerns. And so there's usually a project that kind of starts it off, which will be kind of priced appropriately. And then beyond that, what we're usually looking at is we use your uh, cloud bill as a proxy for how complicated your system is. Mm, okay. So usually we kind of operate at a, at a percentage of that cloud bill. And as we can bring that cloud bill down, that's fantastic for both of us because uh, right, you have a cheaper monthly bill from your cloud provider. And two, we have a simpler architecture with less moving pieces to kind of go wrong. Got it. Yeah, I think that's actually not a bad idea is the gauging sort of the complexity of the setup by looking at the existing infrastructure. So you guys don't provide any sort of managed hosting. <laughs> That's funny. We are working on something like that. There is no announcement to be made other than like everybody else, they have a product in the works. And when is it coming out? When it comes out, like when it's production ready and ready for everybody. Right. Okay, team. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Did we meet your expectations? This has been fantastic. And before we really wrap this up, what we really need to do, Ken and I need to plug you, Etienne. This is fantastic. I mean, we talked about our relationship in the beginning. When we talk about like the impact you've made on your career, right? Either through these podcasts, either through its, the YouTube videos, but mainly like seven CTOs, right? I mean, like we're both members of seven CTOs, card-carrying members. And we plan on being card-carrying members, T-shirt-wearing members, right? You guys... It's fantastic. The impact you're making is great. Thanks, brother. And we, we love going to the conferences and, and can't wait. Yeah, and so Sleep Tight is our flagship sponsor at this year's 0111. Super excited about that. I must say, it's very special knowing you guys for so long to see an, a, a startup incubated from within the community's connections and experience. It really, really is is very special for me too. So I'm excited to see you guys be successful. And, and honestly, you two are some of the nicest people in computer science that I know. So, Well, thank you, Etienne. Now, one point that I think Phil might have been just about to say is not only was it within the community, this company, Sleep Tight, like the founding discussion happened the day after the 011 conference on a golf course after we had attended the conference. Last year, right? Yeah, last year. I remember that. I think I was in the hot tub when you said you were going to go play some golf with Phil. Yeah. I think I might have actually said I'd rather stayed in the hot tub, but... Okay, so... Golf's not my thing, but it was great. We had a great day. <laughs> he laughs. Sleeptight.io, we're going to see a lot more of you guys thank you so much and i can't wait to see what happens with the company and talk to you soon talk Thanks. to you soon great Cheers.